0: Let's, uh, let's pray too as we start again. Father, we're just debtors to your grace. We so fully need you. Um, Lord, as those who haven't left the kingdom of darkness into your kingdom of light yet, we need your grace and salvation. We need to see our desperate need for a Savior and embrace that salvation and pass from death into life. Lord, for many, I know for most here, that's already occurred. There's been a new birth. And yet, Lord, the truth is we still have realms of darkness in our thinking. Paul prayed at two different places in his letter to the Ephesians, Lord, that the eyes of our heart might be enlightened. And that's what we need. Lord, would you use your word to open our eyes, open our hearts, and see you more clearly, love you more dearly. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys know we're in the midst of the Christmas season for sure this morning and yet sort of any glib notion of peace on earth, goodwill to men was shattered this season last Friday in a school in Connecticut when a young man 20 years old went in and murdered 27 people, 20 of them children, most of those six years old and younger, and then took his own life as well. And in any way you look at this, this is, it's tragic, it's terrible, it, it goes beyond words for sure. You know, you're going to hear, and in fact I already have in the limited news stuff I've listened to or viewed since Friday, there's going to be calls for new measures in gun control, because guns are the problem. And you're going to hear what was wrong with this guy's childhood and what his psychological profile was and, and how maybe if we'd done one thing or another for this young guy, he wouldn't have gone off the edge. Would have stayed on the mental reservation, as it were. And you know, for a short period of time at least, the families who have lost their children especially, others have lost their spouses, six adults at least, his mother as well, There are grieving families all over, just like in the Christmas narrative, Rachel's weeping for her children because they are no more. We've got that same scene played out in Connecticut. But guys, when we talk about gun control and we talk about psychological profiles and we talk about short-term levels of comfort for grieving families, we really are not getting to the heart of the problem. Because this is just another reminder like the rampages before and like the death and tragedies that are going to follow this. This isn't the first and this won't be the last. And at some level we say this is a reminder, guys, that we are broken and we are not what we should be. We're not what we are called to be. I don't know that there's anyone in this room that would do what that young guy did. That he'd take a gun or a bomb or anything else and go out and intentionally plan that kind of destruction. But that's just sort of on the end of the spectrum of our humanity, if you will. We're on the same spectrum. And the truth at Christmas season is that we are desperately wicked and in need of a Savior. And if we don't recognize that, then the Christmas story loses the value God intends it to have. We're broken, fractured people. Our hearts are desperately wicked. We're not what we should be. Typically what you see, and it follows events like this, you remember the old nursery rhyme where Humpty Dumpty falls off the wall and all the king's soldiers, and men, they can't put him back together again, but we have a kind of insanity, a kind of moral insanity, a kind of social and cultural insanity in which we live today, in which we think Humpty Dumpty can be mended. That we'll pick up those fractured sections of eggshell and we'll somehow glue them back together. And we treat life that way. And we'll think of this young guy that way and this tragedy that way. But the truth is we need a new eggshell. We need new hearts and we need new lives. We need a peace in our souls this guy clearly did not have and our society does not have today. So in the time of year when we're thinking about peace on earth, goodwill to men, an incident like that just shatters any kind of shallow thinking or any kind of shallow, insufficient way in which we think about that. Christmas, the Christmas story, the story of the incarnation, God enfleshing Himself is about our desperate need for a Savior because of our desperately lost condition before God, and our absolute need for a peace that's not a shallow peace, it's not a transient peace, as we'll see later, it's not a we say peace, peace, when there really is no peace. The incarnation is about God providing a Savior and a means of real, lasting, satisfying peace. If we come to the Christmas season and don't see our own desperate condition before God, then we have absolutely no grasp and no real apprehension about the incarnation of the Son of God. Remember, He is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. He's come to make depraved minds whole again. He's come to replace old sinful broken hearts with new ones and He's come to bring peace that is so costly that in the words of Paul in Colossians 1, it was only possible, it could only be purchased through the blood of Jesus' cross. In the season of the Incarnation, we can't stop at Jesus' birth. You've got to go to the crucifixion and resurrection or we don't comprehend the story or its importance. You know, this Christmas season, by the way, this is not a feel-good Christmas message, obviously. Um, We're going to have plenty of time for fun and games. We're going to get together with each other. We're going to eat good food. We're going to celebrate. We're going to have good times. And guys, that's all great. And, And I'm for it. And we'll be participating with the best of you and with the rest of you, absolutely. But there's a serious side to Christmas that we cannot afford to miss. We need to be thoughtful when we quote And think of passages like Luke 2, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. What in the world does that mean today? After tragedy, what does that mean and what does it look like in the face of murder and strife at both personal and national levels? How do we get peace? How in the world does a baby lying in a stone trough, how does a baby bring us peace? Peace. If we don't see the desperateness of our human hearts, the Incarnation is a nice story. And it's an accent to a winter solstice celebration and little more. The need must have been very great indeed for God, second person of the Trinity, to leave heaven, limited Himself in our mortality and come to us in the Incarnation. My bottom line this morning is this. We need peace so desperately, but we don't know it. And even if we have hints at that, if we haven't come to peace with God through Christ yet, we might feel some angst, but we have no no real sense of the depth of our need for peace with God. And even as those redeemed who have come to faith in Christ and seen redemption and moved out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, guys, so many of us so much of the time are still so shallow because we haven't come to grips with how desperate our need was before God. So we don't value the salvation Jesus incarnated and died and rose to provide for us. If we can gain some sense, some real sense of the depth of our need, it transforms how we see the appeal of the gospel and how thankfully we live life after embracing Christ and the peace He offers through the blood of His cross. So, really we're talking about this Christmas season this morning, developing a sense of our need for peace with God. Genesis 19 is not a Christmas story, but it is a story that reflects a lack of a sense of need. So, you remember in Genesis 19, the story of the destruction of the cities of the plain, the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, you remember God says to Abraham, I've come down. I'm going to send my two angelic men, visitors to that city, and they're going to verify if the accounts of the wickedness of that city is as great as I've heard. Of course God knows it is. Just going to the extra degree to make sure it's all verified before judgment comes. So those angelic visitors, they go into the city of Sodom. They find the one righteous household there lot. And as they're in Lot's house lot knows they can't stay in the square. Too dangerous. The men of the city surround Lot's house. They want to do sexual violence to these two angelic visitors. And amongst the mob, how does this make you feel, dads? Amongst the mob are two men, there with the rest of the city, who are engaged to marry two of Lot's daughters. We won't go there. There's a whole other discussion there, isn't there? So... Lot goes out to them because the angels have said, we're here to destroy the city. Get your family together because tomorrow hell is coming. The judgment of God's raining down tomorrow. So you can imagine Lot, he knows this is real. This isn't make-believe. This isn't fairy tale. This isn't myth. So he goes out, Genesis 19:14. He says to his two would-be sons-in-law, up, get out of this place. Yahweh is about to destroy the city but he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. That's the culture we live in today. The gospel is a joke. Their response, he's joking, he's having us on. Now you understand, can you imagine Lot's plea to them? He is serious, guys. He's agitated. He's desperate. Because he knows what's going to happen to them. And he still cares about them. They have no sense of their danger They don't believe harm is imminent and there's no reason in their mind to take this warning seriously. They're not at peace with God and they have no idea what's coming. So what happens? Lot and his family leave the city. They walk out, you know, headed to the safety in the mountains. Forget Lot's wife for a moment. And the fire of God's judgment rains down on Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain and those two men who were desperately warned by Lot, they perish with everyone else. Why? Because there's no perceived need. I'm okay. What you're saying couldn't possibly happen to me. No sense of need. And the gospel, the good news to them was, come with us out of the city. Don't need it. No judgment's coming. You must be joking. If you go further back into Genesis 6, you've got the same account, sort of, in the story of Noah. I love the New Testament calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. Now, we don't know what he said because it's not recorded. But we know Noah was preaching to the people of his day, the judgment of God is coming, not in fire, but in water. Now, just imagine the Genesis account says the years of man will be 120. And most commentators think that means it took about 120 years for Noah and his family to build a boat. Can you imagine I mean, you're a you're an extended family, you're going to build a boat. You know, how many yards long and wide and tall? I mean, it'd take a while. But with every plank that went up, and with every peg that held every plank, and with every bucket of pitch that sealed that boat to make it watertight, guys, every one of those was an appeal to everyone around. Judgment is coming. Get into the boat. But what happens? Just like Sodom. The appeal had been there, but there was no buy-in, there was no sense that I need to get right, judgment's really coming. So Noah and family get on the ark and that's it. Eight souls were saved from the flood that came. Why? No perception of need. No sense that there's a just God whom I am alienated from who is going to judge me for my sins. No sense of need whatsoever. The appeal was there. The message was there. Totally disregarded. No sense of need. Now, many of us today are in the same danger that those folks in Sodom and in Noah's day were in, which is to say, maybe we go to church. We might see ourselves as good people. We're good enough. We have peace enough. And we we don't get it. That God's judgment, His requirements are so high we never meet them. And that we stand potentially under the just condemnation of God. And so the appeal of the gospel, it's lost on us because we don't get it. And the story of Christmas, it's a nice Christmas story. It's a good time for a celebration and a party and get together and it's nothing more. But you know also, for those of us who have embraced Christ and got some sense of need, there still tends to be that shallow apprehension of how desperately we needed peace and how far outside and removed from God and His fellowship and His righteousness we were. So that our temptation is to live shallow lives as Christians because we don't get what we were saved from or to live proud lives because we think, I'm pretty good. God made a good choice when I got saved. If we don't see the need, whether we're an unbeliever still or a Christian, we lack the appropriate response to embrace Christ in the gospel, the blood of his cross, that peace offered there, or as Christians who have that peace, failing to recognize how valuable and costly it was, how desperately we need it, so that that changes the way we see life In our relationship with God in a transforming way. The incarnation of the Son of God was, in fact, the birth of a sacrifice. And that baby in the manger was a baby God, the Father, was offering to Himself through His Son to pay for our sins. Now just pause for a moment. You think of the grief of those families in Connecticut for their little children. Lost lives. They'll never see them again on this planet. God the Father in the Incarnation is offering His child as a sacrifice who will pay the penalty to us on a cross facing His holy, perfect wrath. That baby in the manger is a sacrifice. We need to see that. If we don't, we don't get the Christmas message. The incarnation is not about a cherubic little baby and halos. You know the scene. You got the star above, Mary and Joseph smiling benignly. You know, probably over the sandy hill, the dune there in the distance, the wise men are coming, you know. The shepherds are bowed low, you know, with the animals, you know, and And isn't it cozy and comfortable and there's a warm glow? If we fail to see Jesus is a sacrifice laid out in a manger, and by the way, if you look at Luke 2 and the crucifixion and the burial and the resurrection scenes, these things are woven point by point together. You cannot miss the connections. Jesus was bound Up, swaddling clothes. He's bound up in a cave. They're both in a cave. There's point after point after point. If we fail to get this, we've missed the message of the incarnation. We don't get it. It's a savior for sinners. that's lying there as a sacrifice in an animal trough. That's the incarnation. To the depth of our alienation, uh, Matt Wilson and I were having a conversation the other day just about evangelism and apologetics to folks who aren't, Yet Christians, you know when you talk about God as judgmental, He's a judging God, you know there's this thought that God's mean. He doesn't have to be that mean. Why does He do that? Why do you say that God requires a sacrifice or sin? Why can't God just overlook those things? It's a mistake. I'm basically a good person. He's basically a good person. The shooter in Connecticut was no doubt loved as a child by his families. He He was a nice person. Kind of, sort of. Sort of, kind of. You know, what's with this? You know, God is, uh, if we talk about God is perfect. Um, God is perfect in everything that he is. And there are things that for God are impossibilities. You, you know, we quote a, a verse and we say, all things are possible with God. Well, that means all things that are possible with God. There are impossibilities with God. God cannot act contrary to his nature. He cannot do it. He cannot act contrary to his word. So if we say God is loving, what we really mean is God is perfectly, fully, totally loving. He is, absolutely. If we say God is good, we mean he's perfectly, fully, totally good. Not a spot, not a hint of anything less than good. But friends, when we say God is holy, we mean God is fully, totally Absolutely. Holy. And holy means entirely what God should be and nothing that He shouldn't be. Holy means entirely set apart from anything that's less than God should be. And because God is perfect in His holiness, His holiness requires judgment on sin. It cannot be any other way. Don't ever feel the need when you talk to others to apologize for God's holiness? It's an apology for the incarnation and the crucifixion of Jesus. There's no other way we could have been saved. And God cannot stop being holy and He cannot look at sin and say, it's okay. It's an impossibility. It will never happen. It can never happen. Sin is the deal. You know in Isaiah's day... Isaiah 59, uh, the Jews are talking to Isaiah and to the Lord. They're praying a little bit and they're saying things like this. You know, we're praying to God, but he doesn't answer. What's the deal? You know, I say to God, Lord, you know, this is what I need. A little help here, Lord, you know, and God doesn't answer. And we say, God, what's the deal? And Israel was saying that. So they say to that, to God, perhaps at temple on Sabbath, and then they go and they worship Milcom on Monday and some, some other temple on Tuesday and... But they complain to God. God, what's the deal? And so God says through Isaiah, Behold, Yahweh's hand is not short that it cannot save. God could help you if He wanted to. There's no power problem here. His ear isn't dull that it cannot hear. God hears you. That's not the problem either. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. Your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. Isaiah says to them, it's your sin that's the issue. Your sin has brought that separation from God. There's no problem on God's side. The problem's on our side. In Isaiah's day, and still again today, later, about a hundred years later, in Habakkuk's day, Habakkuk's down there in Judah, the southern kingdom, Habakkuk's looking at the evil and the wickedness in his culture in Judah, just like we would today. But he also knows because God has told him of the incredible sorrow and the destruction and the devastation that is going to come upon the kingdom of Judah from the wicked, evil kingdom of Babylon. And Habakkuk wants to complain about it. And he knows something about God. So he front loads his complaint like this. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. You see... God cannot let sin pass. He cannot abide sin. He cannot live with sin. It's an impossibility. Our alienation from God is real and it's absolute in our sin. And it requires God's judgment. It can't be otherwise. Now, many of us as Christians have illusions like the Pharisees in Luke 18 that is to say, we come to church on Sunday like he went to temple on Sabbath, and we look around, we look at each other, and say, well, I know I'm better than her. I mean, give me a break. Yeah, I'm better than him. It's not even fair. I'm pretty good. I look around, I compare myself to others, and I'm careful about who I select, of course. I'm pretty good, Lord. Lord. I know I've got a few problems they are minor. I mean, nothing you couldn't overlook. So we're doing pretty good. We're, We're good to go, right? I mean, I don't know about them, but Lord, you and I, we're there. We're solid, yeah. We're brothers in the hood together. You know, it's illusionary. And listen, about that, to think more highly of ourselves than we should, and that's what that is, it's religious pride, It diminishes the reality of our rebellion, the desperate nature of our predicament, and the costliness of our peace. It diminishes Christ and the gospel, that religious pride. That's what we're susceptible to, we as Christians. Now, in Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah lived up to and through the destruction of Jerusalem. In Jeremiah's day, the leadership of Judah was was wicked and carnal and destitute of, of moral intention towards God and covenant faithfulness to Yahweh. But this is what the leaders were saying in Jeremiah's day. They have healed the wound of my people lightly saying, peace, peace, when there's no peace. See, they're on the edge of destruction. God has said, I'm taking you out your sins have piled up and I'm done. Babylon's coming and you're toast. Your history, wouldn't matter which of the prophets were here, I'm, your sins are filled up and we're dealing with them in judgment. But these leaders are saying, no, oh, no, no, don't worry about that. There's peace. There's real peace now. God says to them, they're saying peace, peace, but there's really, there's no peace. That's where we live today. Like Judah, our condition is so corrupt, it calls out for God's judgment. Now, some of us seek peace, 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 Jeremiah's days kind of peace. We seek peace in ways that you can't get it. You know, if I'm lonely, if I'm a little depressed one day, you know, where maybe what I need is, is just something closer with the Lord in me or, or maybe even just fellowship with another Christian, but I'll manage my sense of need for peace. I'll, I'll go and get a little something to eat. Does that work for you guys? It has a certain sense of satisfaction. You know, so food, well, that's peace, peace when there's no peace. You know, or if my conscience is bothering me, you know, maybe drink a little to excess. You know, maybe if I've got those pain pills for a physical condition, I just take a few more of them. Not because I need them physically, because my conscience is bothering me. That's peace, peace when there's no peace. If I'm at odds with others, I can console myself by saying, what do you expect from them? You know, they've got problems. But, but I'm okay. Well, maybe I'm not okay. That's peace, peace when there is no peace. If you and I are going to have peace, God's going to have to provide it because we cannot provide it for ourselves. Our state is too desperate for that. Now, Paul in his epistle to the Romans Spends one chapter, the first chapter, showing that Gentiles are lost before God. That's chapter 1. And then he goes to the religious community in chapter 2 and he shows that Jews are lost before God. Until he gets to chapter 3 in which he sums it all up so that we're all on the same page. And notice the terms, the all-inclusiveness of the terminology here. He sums up by quoting Psalm 14, which by the way... Was a psalm describing moral fools before God in the Old Testament. None is righteous, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, no one does good, not even one. You know, we are all born into this world alienated from God. And our situation is desperate. There's no thought and there's no hint that any of us are okay with God on our own terms or that any of us can have peace with God on our own terms. You know, we sin, all of us, all the time. James, you know, also, for, for believers, right? James says we all err in many ways. We all sin. Not a little. We all sin a a lot. So we sin in thought. You know, by the way, guys, one of the things that's so important for us to do is oftentimes many of us will just feel like we're sort of victim to an old way of living or thinking and old habits we just can't get out of. And oftentimes it's just because we are not doing the disciplinary work of taking our thoughts captive, of when that thought enters our mind. I'm reading my Bible this morning. I have a lustful thought from something that's in my Bible. And I just realized, Lord, Lord you know, here I am, Lord. I've got to catch it right now because if I refuse to, that thing takes on a life of its own. But it takes a discipline in our thought life, in our minds, not to just let those things run. We've got to stop them. Related to old habits, you know, whatever those deficiencies in our, are in our life, it, they start up here. We sin, we err in our thoughts. We sin in our words, in our deeds. We sin intentionally. We sin unintentionally. We exaggerate the truth. And that's a nice way to tell Christians that we lie. We tell lies. We exaggerate the truth. I was just trying to spare them, really. I didn't want to hurt their feelings. You know, I didn't know where that would go. We exaggerate the truth, we lie, we lust, we envy. And guys, that's the best of us. And it goes downhill from there. You know, we, haven't, we haven't got all the other things, uh, the long list of things. <laughs> we haven't got the long list of things we could pull out here, have we? We haven't got to murder, certainly. This is who we are. This is where we live. And this is the best of us. Like those in Sodom and those at the flood, we stand guilty before God of failing to be who He's created us to be. And a peace, peace will not suffice. We need something deep enough, wide enough, significant enough to bring us real peace. Now, the bad news doesn't stop there, of course, because if you establish that we're alienated from God because we sin and He's holy, that still doesn't say what that means. I'm holy, God's holy, I'm not. What does that mean for me? Well, that leads us to something, a nice phrase called the wrath of God. If we work through the truth that God's holy and we're not, we may still be tempted to underestimate God's necessary response to our sin. So guys, because we sin, we stand... For we're outside of Christ, we stand under the perfect, the righteous, the holy, the total, the full, the complete wrath of an omnipotent God against us. That's where being outside of peace with God lands us. Wrath, by the way, is overflowing rage or fury. This from a perfect, omnipotent being. God, it's anger, hot displeasure, indignation. God's anger against sin is perfect and it cannot be anything less than that. Now, you see hints about that in the story of the flood and Sodom and you see those past judgments of God brought up in a place like 2 Peter to remind us that there's future judgment from God still coming. He judged in the past. You know He's going to judge in the future as well. Now, when we think of the Incarnation... And we limit that to the thought of baby Jesus. You know, baby Jesus, the ever-eternal baby who never grows up. Then we miss another aspect of God's wrath because, of course, Jesus himself talks more about hell, the expression of God's wrath against sinners, than anyone else in the Bible. Eleven times in the Gospels he talks about hell, fiery hell, and hell with unquenchable fire. Four more times he talks about Hades. This is the savior of the world talking about the judgment of God, God's wrath on those who will refuse his offer of peace. You get to the last book of the Bible, which was in essence shown and dictated to John the Apostle from Jesus, the Lamb of God, from God the Father. You get to this in Revelation 20. The devil who deceived them, those on the earth, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast, the Antichrist, and his false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We know the end of Satan and all his henchmen, all his followers. It's in the lake of fire, tormented day and night forever. That's the perfect wrath of God poured out on Satan. Satan. The thing for us is it doesn't stop there. If you go a few verses down in Revelation 20 to verse 15, if anyone's name, that's us, that's humanity, was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's us. That's not just Satan and his fallen angels. That's not just the Antichrist, beloved. That's all of us. That's all of humanity. Anyone whose name was not written in the book of life, of life that's the expression of the wrath of God on those who refused his offer of peace peace bought through the blood of Christ's cross if we don't have this underlying understanding Jesus' appearance in the Christmas narrative makes absolutely no sense and if we don't know we're really really broken if we don't know the awful judgment we face God's offer of peace in the incarnation, the blood of Christ's cross has little, if any, appeal. So we get to the appeal, the offer of peace. This is the incarnation narrative. This is the Christmas story. Luke 2, verses 9 through 14 here. You remember Jesus' parents, Joseph and Mary have left Galilee there in the north. They've come down because of the census to Bethlehem. And Mary's ready to... Give birth, there's no place for the inn. They go where the animals are kept. Again, it's likely a cave. And she gives birth. Jesus is laid there in the manger. And there's shepherds out on those hillsides. It's night, they're taking care of their sheep. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Friends, that means we need to be saved. Who is Christ the Lord? This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, Peace among those with whom He is pleased. I know other translations read that differently. That, that is definitely the best version of that last verse 14 in Luke 2. So the birth of Jesus, the incarnation, is God stepping into our humanity in order to become our Savior and give us peace. The peace on earth is not distinct from the incarnation or the crucifixion and resurrection. The incarnation is God's offer of peace to a world that lies under His just condemnation. Jesus in the manger is heaven's offer of pardon to our rebellion. Jesus on earth is the Father's offer of forgiveness and inclusion in His family. You were outside, God says, come on in, in Christ through the peace of the blood of His cross. The birth of Jesus in Bethlehem is the necessary first step in his offering himself on the cross to absorb the awful wrath of God. The incarnation of Jesus is God's means to peace, to real peace. You know, it is all about a sense, perception, a sense of need. Imagine if you were on the edge of a cliff, hundreds of feet tall, And you're enjoying the view beneath you. I'm thinking of the mountains. We were on a cliff this year in the Smokies on the edge of a cliff looking down at the rocky depths below. And if I'm standing there on the edge enjoying the view and life is good and suddenly the soil crumbles beneath my foot and I feel that lurch forward and I realize my body has gone past its center of gravity and that I'm going to fall over that cliff and I know in my mind I'm going over and I'm lost and I'm going to crash on the bottom of the stones and die, how desperately do you think I'd reach out for a hand that I see reaching out to grab me? Man, I'd be desperate and I'd lay hold and I'd be pulled back up. Or if you or I were out in a, in a raging ocean storm, and you're washed over the side of a ship, and the waves are going over your head, and you use all the strength you've got, keep your head above water, gasping for every breath, until your strength is spent and gone, and you've risen to the top for the last time, and you know I'm sinking, and I'm going to drown in the depths of the sea. And if in that last moment as you start to go down, you see a lifeline thrown to you right where your hand is going down, how thankfully do you think you'd grab hold of that line and be pulled back up to safety? Or if you're in the depths of the north woods and you're out there by yourself and you hear the snarl and the snaps of wolves and you find yourself surrounded by a pack of hungry, vicious wolves and you're not armed and you have no defense and they're closing in on you, and you know you're going to be torn and ripped to shreds by these animals. How joyful, how thankful do you think you'd be if you hear a rescue party coming through the woods? It's just a a sense, it's a perception of need. If we don't see the need, the Christmas story is just a nice story. If we get a sense of our alienation from God and what that means... The awful wrath of God on us. Guys, the gospel takes on a whole new meaning. I I want to see that lifeline. I want to see that hand from heaven come down and say, Son, take this. I've got a better way. You don't have to fall to your death. I'm ready. The world, most of the world doesn't know judgment's really coming. It's not a myth and it's not a fairy tale. And guys, I tell you, my own insanity There are times I meet nice people and they're not Christians. And you know what? I want to tell myself, it's okay. They'll be okay. They won't be okay. Apart from Christ, they're going to hell. I always come back to this. Did Jesus really come to the earth? Did he really die? did Did he really rise? And you know what? I just can't get around that. He really did. And you know what else I can't get around? This shooting in Connecticut, We're evil. We're broken. We're deficient. And you know what? I can't get around that either. So no matter how my mind twirls as I swirl around these issues and this nice person or that nice person, that's the bottom line. That's the absolute truth. The incarnation was absolutely necessary because we needed a sacrificial offering to cover our sins. How does God do that? Isaiah 53.5, Isaiah looking ahead through the centuries to Jesus. He was pierced for our transgressions. That's nails and that's a spear. He was crushed for our iniquities. The wrath of God like a stone crushing His own Son on the cross. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. This is the only place in the universe you can get peace with God. It's the only place. His wounds are our healing. There's no other spiritual healing to be found. That's it. Paul says it this way in Colossians 1. Speaking of Jesus, this reflects the incarnation. In Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That is the incarnation. God in flesh. God in our humanity. In Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's the purchase price of your peace and mine. Peace through the blood of his cross. That is the Christmas message. That's the reason and the purpose for the incarnation. How do we get that peace? We accept it. You know, if a hand reaches out from heaven to to save me when I'm falling off the cliff, I'm going to hold on. I'm going to let that hand grab me, and I'm going to grab back. That's faith. You know, if that line's thrown out to me when I'm drowning, I'm going to put my hand around that line. That's faith. Lord, thank you. I'll take that. I don't have to suffer. Thank you. I'll take that. We accept God's offer of peace through the blood of Jesus' cross. The incarnation followed by the life, crucifixion, and resurrection have purchased the only real peace you and I can ever have. There's no other way. Everything else, everything short of that is peace, peace, when there is no peace. Let me close with this. Uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow is arguably the greatest of American poets and he's a guy that kids often memorize in their elementary years in grade school and hate because of the Indian... uh, Story, I can't remember, by the shores of Gichigumi. Sorry, yeah, Hiawatha. Not his most stellar work in my view, but this is a good one. You know, Longfellow was living during the years of the Civil War. Now, put yourself back. The Civil War, guys, is still the bloodiest, most costly war this nation has ever seen. You talk about lack of peace. Brother against brother. Father against son, black against white, north against south, thousands and tens of thousands of young men dying. There was no peace. And that's what Longfellow knew. And Christmas was rolling around. And on Christmas Day, 1864, he didn't know the war was almost over. All he can see is the death and the tragedy of all that's going around in that war, Christmas Day, 1864, not knowing the end was in sight, he wrote a poem called Christmas Bells. That poem was edited by removing two stanzas that spoke specifically about what was going on in the Civil War, and then a melody was added, and it's what we sing today as the carol, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Now remember where Longfellow lives and what's going on as he wrote this. This is his first stanza. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Guys, that's the Christmas story, right? That's the incarnation. That's the peace that we're talking about. But as he goes through the poem, he brings up, There's issues. There's a lack of peace. So as he winds down this poem, he says in view of what was going on, the lack of peace. In despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. That's where we live today. He doesn't stop there. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Folks, the real offer we have of peace on earth, goodwill to men, is the incarnation and the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And it's the blood of the cross that purchased our peace. And our situation is under the just condemnation of God apart from this peace offered solely and only through Jesus Christ and the blood of His cross. I would appeal to you this morning, if you're not absolutely confident, if you died today or if the judgments of God rained down on this earth today that you know you're saved, it's a great season to make sure to say, Lord Jesus, I accept your offer of salvation. I don't want to be at odds with you. I recognize my sin. I recognize your righteousness and your holy judgment and wrath and that it was all appeased through Jesus. And I want what Jesus offers. What better time of year? Could you accept that or make sure of that then now? Father, thank You that You have provided for us a real peace, a lasting peace, a deep peace that was impossible to us otherwise. God, thanks that there is peace through the blood of Your Son's cross and that the incarnation, Lord, is Your message to the earth, not only that we needed a Savior, but that You've provided it. Lord, I pray for all of us here today that we possess, that we have, and that we fully enjoy. Peace with You through the blood of Your Son's cross. Amen.